today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Since the Huawei situation started, uh, and that being the arrest of the Huawei CFO in Vancouver on the request of, uh, from the request of the United States uh, for, I guess, um, trying to avoid sanctions that had been in place for Iran. Uh, of course, we know of the two Canadians that had been held, and then a third, uh, I believe an English teacher from out west, had also been detained. We now find out that 13 in total have been uh, detained since the CFO was arrested here back in December, eight of whom have already been released. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. He's with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Are you surprised to hear about 13 in total being arrested after the Huawei CFO? The only reason I'm not, <clears throat> as you may remember, a few weeks ago, you and I talked about this, was a report that came out from similar sources, either the Globe and Mail or CTV News, and I'm sorry, I can't remember which one it was, which said that a, a, a couple hundred had potentially been um, arrested by uh, Canadians by the Chinese over a period of a number of years. Right. So because of that, yes, it is shocking to find out that at least 13, from what they're saying, have been arrested since December, or at least since uh, the CEO of Huawei was arrested herself in Vancouver. But unfortunately, it sort of fits part and parcel with the possibility that China right now may be, and we can't say it with certainty, but we can at least look at it with a, a puzzled look on our face, if nothing else, but maybe targeting Canada in this battle that they're having with a number of other countries, in particular the United States, just in terms of not just Huawei's 5G network and other things, but the whole issue that we're worried about with Huawei, which is safety and security. So what do we know about these 13? Now, all that, these 13 include the two that are still being detained that we know of, yes. and of course the uh, Alberta school teacher, I believe, way back when, that was also announced. Uh, That's what, right. What do, we know, what do we know about these people? Do we have names, anything like that? Well, I've looked at two articles, again from CTV and, Glo- and, and the Globe and Mail, who I think are covering it more so than others, which is to their credit. Um, as of right now, Global Affairs Canada, and I'm just reading off the, uh, off the CTV website, is stating that at least of the 13 Canadians who were detained, at least eight, and that's a quote, have been released. And that also includes um, uh, Sarah McIver, who was the, uh, the English teacher from right. Alberta who was in China. So most of them have been released. So if, if you want to be careful about it, you could say that in one hand it could be coincidental that a number of them were arrested for suspicious charges and things and were let go when they found nothing you know, that, was, uh, that would hold them for a longer period of time. And that's possible. But on the other hand, it's all from the same country. And based on the fact that Meng Wanzhou from Huawei, the CEO, was arrested in Vancouver, and you have this unusual connection with a lot of Canadians now being sort of, if not targeted, being looked at pretty strenuously by the Chinese government for various things, you have to wonder if there isn't a tie. It is the wildest coincidence I've ever seen, and maybe you've ever seen too. Uh, so uh, 13 in total, 8 released. That would mean 5 left, including the 2 that we know about. Do we know yep. anything of the 3 that were still detained? No names that I found, and really not very much. And that's not to say that the names won't be released, and that's also not to say that if these 5 individuals remain detained in China for a period of time, we won't find out more about them, where they're from in the country, what they do, uh, why they were in China in the first place, etc., etc. But as of right now, I mean, look, it's the nature of information being leaked out. It would be easy on the one hand for people to say, well, why haven't we already talked about this? Why haven't news organizations like CTV, like the Globe and Mail, or other publications, including say, the National Post, or even as far as the Hamilton Spectator, why have they not come out with the same sort of information, and why have they not been able to reveal this? I think we have to be fair about it. The Chinese government, or basically the Chinese communists, tend to be very secretive in nature in terms of how they operate things. Not unique, most totalitarian regimes operate in the same manner, but the Chinese are especially good at it, and when it comes to issues like safety and security, or when it comes to arrests made of either people who actually live in the main, on mainland China 
or from abroad <clears throat> who may be arrested for a wide variety of things, some of them possibly legal, some of them completely illegal, but at least by the way we look at it, by the nature of the rule of law in a democracy, um, we will learn probably more about these people over time. But we have to assume it's all connected in some fashion unless proven otherwise. And certainly, I hope it's not all connected because, as you and I have talked about, and I've discussed it with others, we are inherently tied to, the ch to China in terms of not just politics, but economics. Many of the items that we have in our homes are Chinese-built or Chinese-made and are imported into our country. We can't suddenly just basically, as I've said before, because China is so powerful and is, is basically an economic superpower, we can't just basically cut them off and say, well, that's the end. Besides the, besides the fact that the Chinese will not be affected by it one way or the other, Scott, because they're so powerful and because trade with Canada, while certainly sizable, it could be replaced very, very easily with other countries who would long to trade with China based on the various things that they create and do, both importing and exporting. Did we so make them, did we, sort of did we make them that powerful, Michael, <laughs> by just uh, looking for uh, lower prices and a place to market our stuff? Is this all? about economics? Well, I wouldn't did, say we in the sense that it wasn't Canada who did it. Yes. I mean the West. Yeah. the West. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was going to start making comments about Pierre Trudeau, but you're right. Yes. Did the West do it? Yeah, to some extent, obviously they did. But on the other hand, uh, if you look at where Japan was at the end of World War II, after the two, you know, the mm -hmm. two H-bombs that occurred in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how they rebuilt themselves, they were also rebuilt by the fact that the West started to purchase their products, which yep. got better and better over time. The difference there is that Japan is a full-fledged democracy and obviously mm. is aligned with Canada, the United States, and most Western countries uh, you know, as an ally, whereas China has not been seen in that way. We work and deal with China because they just kept getting stronger and mightier. And if all of us, and that being most Western nations, if we basically decided that, well, because of human rights abuses, because of one-state rule, because of mistreatment of women and others, that they weren't going to allow it to, you know, they weren't going to allow the economic partnership to, be, to build itself up and to actually start increasing or enhancing our ties with China, we were all going to be left back. So it was one of those examples, and, you know, we've used other countries, Saudi Arabia, various others, where you unfortunately have to deal with countries that don't necessarily agree with the, the freedoms and liberties that you cherish or that we cherish in this country. And for that reason, yes, we built up China, but on the other hand, China built itself up, became so powerful that it was impossible not to be at least a little interested in what they were doing. Why are we just finding out about these 13 now, considering what's been happening over the last month? Well, as I suggest, it's, it's mainly because China's very secretive. They're very, very careful and cautious. Would Canadians of, know it anyway? Would anybody in the Canadian government have known about this? Well, if Global Affairs Canada knew, then yes, I would assume they did. Now, can I pinpoint exactly when? No, and they're, they're not being honest about it right now. And who knows? We don't know who the first person was, and we don't know what the first notification was. Plus, to be fair, and I'm going to be nice to the bureaucrats on this, when the first few things dribbled in, they may have actually had nothing to do or they didn't see a connection directly right. <clears throat> with the Huawei CEO. They might have just seen this as, oh, God, we're having problems with China, put them into a file, and then started to realize as the numbers began to grow, there were more and more of them. Does Global Affairs Canada or does the federal liberal government believe that there's a connection? I would be shocked at this point if they didn't think there was one. But will the federal liberals, <clears throat> that more so being Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, speak out against them? He should. I think most Canadians should demand that he do so. But as of right now, I don't see anything happening. What about the U.S. travel advisory that was issued yesterday? Obviously now can, uh, Canada getting support from other countries such as the United States. Yep. Uh, them uh, issuing a travel advisory. How come they are and yet Canada isn't considering it's our people that are being detained? That's an excellent question. You're absolutely right. And it is something that we should be asking the federal liberal government. But doesn't this make us look silly thinking, you know, our neighbor has issued this warning yet we haven't? Well, it makes us look even sillier based on the fact that we're the ones being targeted yeah. right now, more so than the Americans who, as you said, issued the travel advisory in the first place. 
So, yes, you're absolutely right. I think this is definitely something, and you and I have both said it now, that the federal liberal government has to address in one way or another. And I'm not saying necessarily that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his liberal advisors necessarily want to rail against China, based due to, as I said, political and economic interests that have existed between the two countries for decades. But on the other hand, when this sort of evidence keeps popping up from various news sources and organizations, you can't ignore it any longer. So it really is up to the federal liberals to make a decision as to how they want to tackle it. They may want to couch the language, sort of walk on eggshells and be careful about it. But I agree with you. Something has to be said in the new year, and the earlier, the better. Uh, Are we learning anything from this, Michael? Well, is this surprising to anyone that we're we're ending up at at this place? Yeah, you know, that's that's a hard question to answer. Have we really learned anything? I think most of us have been suspicious of China for many decades, so I don't think we're necessarily learning anything that way. I guess the one thing we are learning is that no matter how hard we try to build relations with the Chinese, and certainly China will do it, they have work with lots of countries that they do not agree with, either politically or economically, in terms of the way that they operate, either via democratic elections all the way to the free market. But at the same time, you know, I think what Canadians have learned is that we can still do things with the Chinese, we can still work with them, but we just can't necessarily trust them. We have to be extremely careful how we handle our relations with this country, especially when we arrest the Huawei CEO at the bequest or request of the United States, and look what happens from there. You have to assume that everything is kind of tied together. You can't prove it at this stage, and certainly there's no breadcrumb trail from A to B, but it would seem to be a massive coincidence otherwise. I think that really what Canadians have to learn, and especially this federal government and all federal governments that follow when either Justin Trudeau loses or retires from office, is that you've got to be exceedingly careful how you deal with China. doesn't mean you can't deal with them. doesn't mean you can't trade with them. doesn't mean you can't look at new political and economic opportunities. It just means you can't trust them. You, you can only trust them to a point. If you basically, uh, you know, hold out your arms and say how wonderful they are and sing Kumbaya, <laughs> it's not going to work. Others have tried it. It just doesn't work very well. And if this, le- this episode or these episodes haven't taught Canadians anything, we're going to keep falling into the same you know, trap over and over again, and these pitfalls will not be avoided. It's time to avoid them. Should Canadians be going there? There's a delegation heading down uh, the, uh, next week in regard to uh, trade and such. Right. Where does that leave things? They could protest it. It's certainly possible. It's within their purview if they wish to. They don't have to go to this meeting. But on the other hand, as I said, it's very, very hard to completely break ties with China, especially because no matter what Global Affairs Canada knows, no matter what they are aware of when it comes to these 13 people who've been detained, eight of which are now been released, you still have to sort of continue on in the hope that there is absolutely no connection here and it's just a lot of bad apples. I know that's a terrible thing to think, and my guess is it's probably not accurate, But at the same time, most Western democracies deal with countries that they don't necessarily agree with for other benefits. That's the way politics is played. That's the way the free market system operates. I'm not saying it's perfect. I've always said a million and one times that it's not the best way to do things. But on the other hand, if we basically just condemn everyone and refuse to deal with anyone, we become more and more isolated. If we truly believe in a global economy, we have to find ways to deal with these things. But at the same time, there are many back channels for the Canadian Chinese government to deal on this issue, and the Canadian government, even if it doesn't want to do it publicly, must privately say something and ensure that the safety and security of those five remaining Canadians who have been detained in China are not only protected, that they're released as quickly as possible. Will this change, and I know you got to run, Michael, will this change the Prime Minister's position with the news of these 13? You would think it would, but unfortunately, when it comes to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and ideologically, as you know, I have nothing in common with this man. I'm very different than him. I think very differently than his government. I think that Justin Trudeau is probably playing nice or playing footsie, shall we say, with the Chinese because he remembers what his father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, did in China. And there is no doubt that his father played a very integral role 
to ensuring that Canada-Chinese relations got stronger as time went along, and that Canada's foothold into the Chinese market as it continued to grow would obviously be to our benefit. However, you know, as we've learned with certain countries, including Cuba, which is a notable one, Justin Trudeau cannot always live in the past and cannot always walk in his father's footsteps, which he sometimes tries to do, whether liberals like it or not. He's got to stop doing it here, because that is the only reason I can think of that he wouldn't have said anything at all right now, because most leaders of democracies, including our country, would be fuming at this stage. Our prime minister isn't. He's in a re-election campaign. This is something we should be all thinking about long before we head to the ballot boxes. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist and uh, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you so much. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great weekend. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. People are speaking out against uh, the social media backlash. Uh, that uh, the Team Canada players, uh, especially the captain, have received. Uh, they've been facing this since, uh, obviously, their loss against Finland. To bring uh, to talk about that and other stuff around the horn, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, uh, Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you so much for the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Scott. Here's to a great year filled with juicy news stories for you and I to discuss. Hopefully better than what we've had this week. It's awful <laughs> dead right now, that's for yeah. sure. So do you, are you a New Year's resolution maker? No. Whoa. You want to think about that for a second? Yeah, no. How come? I mean, there are certain things I think that I would like to achieve over the long run, but, you know, I pretty much, at this age, I sort of know what I can accomplish and what I can't accomplish, so I cut myself a little bit of slack. That's good advice. I work hard all the time. What there you take, go. Like most people. All right, uh, Team Canada, we all watched uh, the, the loss in overtime with, uh, against Finland. Uh, obviously something that is uh, true to Canadians' hearts over the holidays as uh, lots gather around and watch with family and friends and such. Uh, since the loss, a backlash on social media against these players. Uh, is this justified? Is it valid because they're just kids? Or, or sorry, is it not valid because they are just kids? Is it valid because they are on their way to the professional uh, leagues and such. Where do you stand on this? First of all, I'm disgusted. Um, a couple of years ago, when the World, Ch- World Juniors were in Buffalo, uh, well, it's probably more than a couple of years ago, but anyways, we got tickets to see a few games. And if you've never seen international caliber hockey, this is the tournament to go to, or at least one of them. Mm-hmm. And the level of play, the commitment, the dedication, the heart that these, all these kids from no matter what country they're representing play with is absolutely astounding. So, you know, having personally experienced the, the world juniors um, in a setting where, you know, it was in the U.S., and, but, the, you know, the audience was mainly uh, Canadian, you know, gives me sort of a different, uh, maybe not an insider, but certainly a closer perspective to it. So when you see a kid who is obviously Maxime Comtois, I believe, mm-hmm. who is obviously trying his best to score in overtime, you know, sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And for him, it did not. And, you know, yeah, you can sit in your living room and go, oh, I can't believe it. You know, it, that's one thing. But it's another thing to get on Twitter, you know, go and look up his Twitter account and then Take the next step and write a tweet, and then take the next step after that and press send. That's a special kind of person. <laughs> so if you want to hide behind your computer in order to display or vent your anger, you know, there are professionals that can help you with that, uh, you know, with that displacement of anger and that there's better ways. There was no need for that at all. That being said, uh, they are getting ready for the pros. Do they not deserve to be criticized? Do they not deserve to be analyzed? I think that the sports reporters do uh, a good job of that. They don't need Joe Armchair Public coming at them. And yes, I think that you know when you do enter the pros, you do need to develop a thicker skin. I mean, anytime you get up in more elite levels of any sport, whether you're amateur or professional, you need to develop a thick skin because there are people who are always gunning for you and always want to be better than you. So, and and it works the same in in hockey. And I think that you know, yes, you need to develop a thicker skin. But not because there's some troll sitting in his basement who wishes to vent his anger to you. Not because of that. There's no justification. There's no saying, well, 
you know, it's like somebody saying to me, well, now that you've graduated university, Alyssa, which was a long time ago, and this is your first job, you know, get ready because people are going to be meaner. Yeah, yeah maybe they will, but they won't do so publicly. So hmm. I don't buy it. What about uh, the Party Quebecois uh, politician interim leader's response saying that this was racially motivated? Gee, is it an election, federal election year or something <laughs> next, next year, this year? Um, yeah, that's a bridge too far for me. This isn't about racism. This isn't about racism against uh, Francophones or Quebecers. Not at all. This was just pure and simple. You missed a shot. We didn't get to move on, and it's all your fault. And it's not because your name is Maxime Comtois. I think that if your name was like Joe, you know, Joe Brown, it would have been the same thing. So I think that that's just grandstanding. I think it's a, a convenient way to get yourself in the media in what is, you know, traditionally, and you and I both know this, a slow news week. Absolutely. Uh, your response to the information coming out that 13 Canadians in total had been detained after the Huawei CFO uh, had been detained in uh, Vancouver. Eight have already been released, including the teacher from Alberta. Uh, still, the the two uh, that, that were originally detained are detained, and then three more that we don't know of. What does this do from a public relations standpoint for our relationship with China and doing business with this country? You know, right now, unfortunately, our federal government doesn't have a great track record when it comes to you know, developing great trade relationships around the world, as you have seen this year. I did see an interview with Trudeau, and he said, you know, the interviewer said, how would you have, uh, what do you think of the India trade mission? And he said, well, we could have done a lot better. So here we are, you know, we arrested the executive from Huawei, and the Chinese are essentially getting back at us um, by withholding Canadians. So from from our perspective, I think if you're looking at optics, or government optics, the one thing that they have to make sure that we know that they're doing is that they're doing everything possible, that we know they're negotiating, we know that we, they've obtained the release of, of eight of those Canadians, that we know that they're in constant contact, and that that requires talking to the media. It doesn't mean you have to tell us any state secrets, but it requires talking to the media. It requires keeping us as Canadians appraised because... Maybe normally they wouldn't do as much um, in a non-election year, but they're certainly going to do it now. And so from an optics perspective, we have to, the government has to make sure that we know that they're working their hardest on these Canadians, detained Canadians' behalf. Does this make the Prime Minister look as if he is not in control? Well, he's not in control. This is one of those situations where you were reacting to a situation. You know, you can say that you provoked it by arresting the executive in the first place. And who knows what went on behind doors to make that happen? Like, it certainly wasn't the U.S. that arrested them. You know, I'm not sure what the impetus to arrest that executive was Mm. originally. But arrest him, we did. And to suffer the consequences, we are. Surprise, so, surprise, yeah. we're hearing about these 13 now, considering this has happened a while ago? You know, the, the, in, with the news cycle, no matter how much you try and contain it, and I'm sure that the, you know, the Chinese government has lots of controls in place in order to do that, um, you know, this is not secret to many people, but it is to, you know, most of us. But, um, you know, you have to be careful on how much information that you relay and how much you think the public actually needs to know. But in, in a society as such as we live in now, where information can get released despite your best efforts, then you have to deal with it. So the problem with that is, is that you better be ready to deal with it. You better be ready with your key messages, and you better be ready with your action plan in order to get these people out. All right, let's go south of the border. Uh, interesting times down there. Not that they haven't oh, been right. already, uh, yeah. but obviously Donald Trump does not have the control he once did with uh, the Democrats now controlling the House. Uh, wall versus border security. Is this an argument over terminology more than anything? It could be, but I think that you have to take a step back here. And I think from what I understand that Donald Trump is ready to sign something around border security. And then both Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh began to publicly bait him. Yeah. And those are two, you know, very, very high-profile people uh, with large audiences, large radio audiences, large social media platforms uh, where they attract a lot of audiences. And, you know, he, he took that bait, in other words. 
and that's how Trump communicates. So if you if you fight fire on the same platforms that he uses, it had the desired effect. So at this point, it's all about saving face, although the face of the government has changed markedly if you looked at some of the, swe- the, the swearing-in ceremony yesterday. Mm. And, you know, I know a little bit about Nancy Pelosi, but after I saw that interview with her daughter saying that you could cut her, she could cut your head off and not care, I think that was all I needed to know. What does that tell you? That means she's tough as nails. And if Donald Trump thinks he's going to have a a pleasant ride over the next few years, he better buckle up. How does, how do the Democrats position this? Because, you know, when, when Donald Trump started his election campaign, it was all about draining the swamp. Um, uh, America was tired of the congestion that was was happening in politics, uh, the filibustering that was going on, the readings of, of green eggs and ham and stuff, and, and enough's enough. That being said, as we head into the second ha- half of this presidency, he's heading right in for that swamp, is he not? Well, he's created his own swamp, although the people that he started out with are certainly not the people that are still there. So, you know, based on that, I don't really... No, if, I mean, he may have an idea, Trump may have an idea of what he's in for, but I don't think he really knows how it's all going to play out and what effect it will have on him. And, you know, the Democrats may well tie him up for the next two years. But as you mentioned on the outset of the question, you know, how do the Democrats play this? And, and it's interesting. So if you're asking me now, my answer now is play to your base. Play to your base that wants you to do this. And if they want you to do this, then you need to do it. Because Donald Trump continually makes policies and plays to his base. So I think that you have to take the demographics where you're strong, know where your voters sit policy-wise, and then create an action plan from there. If the Democrats just bring government to a halt by slowing Donald Trump down, will that work, or will that uh, will, will will there be a backlash with that? Are they are they spending too much time concentrating on him as opposed to an alternative that can beat him next election? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, Elizabeth Warren has already declared an interest in running for president. I think you're going to this field isn't crowded yet, but I think that it will be crowded. So, you know, if you wonder where the Democrats have been for the last two years, I think they've been waiting for this moment. So the first thing they did was, you know, try to take over the House, do the best that you can in Congress. So they took over the House. And that was step one. Okay, so now that they've done that, and Donald Trump no longer has complete control of the government, what's the next step? The next step is to tie him up the way you can, the best way you can, and then start getting your front runners uh, to declare themselves and start getting them out there. Because you know what happens when you come out too early. You kind of, it's very, very hard to maintain that momentum. But if you start with a slow build, and then those that are strongest will come out as sort of the de facto spokespeople for the party, and their unhappiness with the Republicans and the Trump administration. And those are the people that you can see carrying the flame into the primaries. Uh, your thoughts on the picture that uh, appeared on Instagram, uh, Donald Trump uh, sending around a shot of him with underneath, uh, similar to the Game of Thrones logo, the wall is coming. Well, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, listen, haha, it's clever. Um, I think that as far as, I don't know, do Trump voters watch the Game of Thrones? Do they have HBO? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Hillary went that deplorable route, and look where she ended up. They have it. Are people watching in the Deep South? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's clever. I'm watching Ozark. Why not? Oh, I think Ozark. It's even too dark for me to watch. Really? Um, I love that. I have a few others. We can trade Netflix shows later. But, um... I, I think that that's just some staffers. Uh, somebody probably said that as an offhand remark. Trump liked it, and it appeared as a meme. So I, I, I don't see many more plays like that, but somebody probably thought it was clever. How, I wouldn't read too much into it. How does he continue to sell a wall that the Democrats say will never happen? Well, you know, this, this whole how, how does he sell the compromise? How does he even sell the compromise? Yeah, the, 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 first of all, the, you know about the GoFundMe campaign that's happening. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you consider, and this has to give you pause, has to give anybody pause, but when you consider 
that they have raised, what's the total now? $20 million? Yeah. Somewhere between 10 and $20 Somebody was raising money for a ladder, too. You know, for <laughs> and people are willingly giving that money. Yeah. And they're giving that money to the GoFundMe, by the way. I don't know if it's going to the Republican Party to help in the run-up to the next uh, federal election. But they have raised that much money over people who want to keep other people out. Yeah. So that is an important sentiment when you're coming to a political compromise. So if you're the Democrats, you're thinking, okay, well, listen, you can't dismiss that. Yeah. You can't dismiss no. that this many people, what they're asking for is that there's a process and to follow the process. And it's also what a lot of people in Canada are saying, you know, after Trudeau said, you know, we're welcoming you with open arms and, you know, we, we have this issue of don't ask, don't tell. And we, can't, we don't know who's coming over as far as, as long as you claim you're a refugee. So it's interesting. People might not declare their interest in a wall, but they are declaring their interest in border security. The sad part is, is the issue of border security being lost in this discussion or battle over terminology? Well, you know, now that the Democrats um, have control of the House, they need to start messaging what their want is. And you have to make it so that the, the general populace understands what you're looking for. So the, the beauty of what Trump does is that his messages are very simplistic. He does not use highfalutin language. He talks from the, he shoots from the hip, and everybody understands what he says. So the Democrats have to be exactly the same way, and they have to be able to articulate that compromise in a way that doesn't um, anger the people who are actually donating to this wall. And that's not an easy job to do. So if you want border security, what is that? What is it going to look like? What is the process? What are you going to do when people show up at the border? So all that has to be articulated, and it's not an easy thing to do. How do you make friends with a bully? I don't think you make friends with a bully. I don't. But again, each one of these, each side digging their heels in here, uh, someone, something's going to have to give. Well, I think that, you know, one side is going to present themselves as more altruistic, and one side is going to present themselves as, as, as a hardliner. And that's been basically the division between the Democrats and the Republicans as long as I can remember. So I don't think they're going to deviate from what their philosophies are that drive each of their, political, their respective political parties, but how they message it. The person who has the party that messages the most clearly is the party that's going to win. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant and principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. As always, thank you for the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. An op-ed, uh, po- uh, op-ed column today in the National Post says that the opposition parties need to focus on themselves before attacking... The ruling progressive conservatives. Randall Denley has uh, published the piece. Ontario Liberals NDP need to worry less about Ford and more about sorting themselves out. And of course, you can read Randall in the National Post, also columnist for the Ottawa Citizen. And Randall is with us now. Thanks for the time, Randall. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Uh, have the Liberals fallen, have the Ontario Liberals fallen into the same trap as the Democrats in the United States in the sense that they're spending most of their time pointing out the obvious flaws in the leader instead of providing an alternative? Well, I think they have, and the Liberals are in, they're in a pretty sad state. They have seven seats, they're well short of uh, party status, they got big debt, their fundraising is terrible, I mean, they don't know who their leader is going to be, they got big internal problems to solve. And we haven't heard as much, you know, for them because they don't get the time in the legislature. But really, I think, you know, both parties have made it all about Doug Ford. What a terrible guy Doug Ford is. Unfortunately for them, he's a terrible guy who still has, you know, higher uh, party support than either one of their parties has. So both of them have got a lot of work to do before the next election. I'm sure the worst thing their supporters can imagine is, you know, seven years of Doug Ford. But... When you look at the state those two parties are in, that's a very very likely outcome if they don't get their acts together soon. It seemed, you know, you always hear uh, uh, you always hear uh, retaliation from the opposition parties. That's what their job is. That's what they're supposed to do. But it does seem uh, in this situation with Doug Ford that the leader has been attacked a lot and, and, and a lot of comparisons made uh, to Donald Trump. Why this strategy? 
And certainly the NDP's strategy in particular, you know, their goal seems to be to make people believe that Doug Ford is just a really, really bad guy. When he cuts something, it's just callous. I mean, the only reason, you know, he got a $15 billion deficit, but, you know, he cut something driven by callousness. I think because they, it's hard to, harder to criticize the content, I think, of a lot, a lot of what this government has done than it is to Ford, who, of course, you know, comes into things within Toronto in particular, a negative image with people who remember him as a, a city council member, his brother. So it's a storyline that's easy to feed into. Oh, Doug Ford, he's just going to be crazy. He's going to be terrible. Let's talk about that all the time. But if that was a winning uh, attack line, then you would probably see the NDP at the top of the polls because they're the guys who are leading that attack. But but there they are in third place at 25%. So if I were the NDP, I'd step back and say, maybe that's not really working for us. If we just attack Doug Ford all the time, personally, makes our leader look kind of nasty, and people say, well, well you the NDP, well, what would you do? Well, they never talk about that. So, and it's a little early well, in the tenure to be doing this, isn't it? I mean, can well, you do specifically this? Specifically, the... it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't expect them to lay out a, you know, a campaign platform for the next election. Obviously, they don't have one, and it's yeah. too early. But I think, to me, the kind of contrast, you know, they want to draw more often is, well, Doug Ford is doing this. We think that's a mistake. What we, what he should be doing, what we would do, is this, which is different, better less harmful, cares more about people, whatever button they want to push. But, you know, if they want to say, you know, the government does negative things, we would do positive things like this or this. You know, just occasionally make some uh, constructive comment. When I look at the, the problem that we have in Ontario with the deficit, it's big. Uh, you know, the financial accountability guy has made it pretty clear that, look, there's really no way you can just cut your way out of this. There's got to be some kind of middle ground. That leaves the door open for opposition parties to say, well, he's right. You know, we think maybe some taxes have to go up or, well, yes, some things could be cut. If we were the government, we would cut something. What would you propose? They have a potential constructive role to play, but if it's just every dime Doug Ford cuts, it's because he's a mean, nasty guy. I don't think that's, it's just not washing with people. It's not hurting them the way they hoped. They just need to find a different strategy. What about Doug Ford creating his own problems? As well, you mentioned, he's very good at that, isn't he? It, as you mentioned in the column with the OPP situation and then with uh, slashing the seats at Toronto Council. Uh, yeah, those are the top two things. I think there are other things that people would put on that list, but the Toronto thing to me was is just mostly irrelevant to his job and challenges Premier. Okay, if he was mayor of Toronto, he'd be all hot to trot on this, but he's not mayor of Toronto. He's the Premier of Ontario. We're in an election. Most people, even ones who might think, okay, yeah, fewer councillors, fine. But I say, well, but look, the election race has already been running, and people have put their names forward, and now you're going to change it all in the middle of the game. That didn't seem like a smart move. There was really no upside for him. I mean, it all came to pass. You know, Toronto uh, goes on as much as, uh, you know, they, they told us it wouldn't, but the OPP commissioner thing is a bad one, too. I mean, he says, look, he had nothing to do with selecting this guy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we know he's a longtime friend of Doug Ford. 50 years with the Toronto Police never rose above the rank of superintendent. They had to expand the criteria to even get him on the list. So maybe he did have nothing to do with it. But most people would look at that and say, well, sure you did. And, you know, despite that, he said, but he's the best guy. It's hard for people to believe that a 72-year-old who never got to senior ranks in Toronto would somehow be the best guy to lead the OPP. And it's one of those things, if you appointed somebody who was competent, not controversial, nobody would care, nobody would know. Yeah. So, you know, why go out of your way to look for trouble when you've got so many big things ahead for Ford? He's, he's going to have to tackle this deficit. That's going to mean changes to health care. It's going to mean changes to education. Things that people won't like. So why blow off a whole bunch of political capital on something that you know, really doesn't mean that much? I guess it's nice if his buddy gets the job, but if he doesn't, well, 
doesn't have much to do with uh, Doug Porter's big challenges. Especially, as you mentioned, considering the condition, the shape of the other two parties, he really doesn't need to go here. He doesn't no, need to create this he's in, a, he's in a wonderful position, actually. And I think there's been so much attention on you know, Doug screws up this, Doug screws up that. The people kind of lose sight of the bigger picture here. He's in you know almost a historically good position for a PC party where you've got the liberals who are, you know, they're so far down. Mm. Doesn't mean they can't come back, but it's going to be really, really tough to come back to anything more than sort of modest respectability in the next election. You know, the NDP, Andrea Horvath, has already had three elections. She's lost them all. If she was going to win one, it would have been the last one when the liberals were so weak. So you look at them and you think, how would they ever win an election? So both of the parties that oppose them, you know, they'll have the virtue of splitting the vote, which, you know, helps Doug Ford. But either one of them individually, it's going to be hard for people to think of the next election, oh, yeah, at least these people are ready to govern. I'm keen on them. So unless he does an outrageously bad job, he's going to get two terms. Do Ontarians, do Ontarians want to hear from the Liberals yet? Are they still, are they still just you know, so upset from what's happened with the Wynn government? It's still too early to hear from a Liberal. Yeah, no, no, they don't, I don't think. And they're not really hearing that much from them. Either the Liberals, I think, are still sort of like disaster survivors kind of wandering around in the, the ruins of their party. But their big issue right now is what do they do about leadership? Uh, if you, you look at their fundraising, it's terrible. They owe a lot of money. You know, some people, Greg Sorbera, prominently among them, the former finance minister, says, well, we need a leader. We need him for her right now. So let's get going in the spring with the leadership uh, race. We'll have somebody in place by October. But he goes, well, who would that be? I mean, they've only got seven people. The interim leader mm. says he's not going to run. Kathleen Wynne isn't going to run. So now you're down to... Five people, some of whom were cabinet ministers, none of whom are shining superstars exactly. To me, their smart move would be to wait and say, let's see what happens in the federal election. Probably liberals are going to lose some seats in Ontario. Maybe there'll be somebody good who isn't available now, but might be available this fall. If there was ever a party that needed you know, somebody to come from the outside and kind of rejuvenate them, I think it's the liberals. But they've really got to focus themselves on their own uh, survival and revival. Now, it, it doesn't matter too much what they have to say about Doug Ford. A little different for the NDP, though, because they are the official opposition, and people look at them more. They get a lot more airtime than the Liberals, and you know that's all part of judging the NDP. Are they ready for government? Well, what kind of tone do they strike? Remember when people used to say... Uh, Andrea Horvath, she's so popular, and people really like Andrea Horvath. I, well, I was that—that's on my list of questions, and I'll jump yeah. to it now. I mean, okay. right, right. Uh, I mean, you go back to the polling before the last provincial election. On uh, Andrea Horvath had the highest numbers out of any leader, so it, it was almost as if she was. With, and I always joked, if Andrea Horvath was a liberal, she'd probably be premier by now. She probably would. Uh, that being said. Why is she getting such a failing grade for leader of the opposition when everybody loved her uh, at the beginning of this election? Because I don't, well, I think that, you know, that tailed off at the end of the election, too, when people saw her in that final debate when she was kind of kind of snarky and her eyes were rolling up every time Doug Ford said something, and she just didn't seem likable, and she's, and she's just stuck with that tone as opposition leader. She's always constantly on the attack in a very personal way, you know, Doug Ford, when are you going to come clean? Doug Ford, when are you going to admit this is all just helping your cronies? The things that aren't, a lot of the accusations he made are not terribly fact-based a lot of the time, but she just seems like somebody who's always really mad all the time. People don't like that. I know it's a challenge for any opposition leader to, you know, hold the government to account, but to do it in a way that doesn't make you less likable than you were when you started. It's not easy. You know, it's a job she hasn't had before, and I don't think she's really gotten it yet. And she doesn't have a lot of real star power in her caucus either. So there aren't a whole lot of other people to kind of. Is she spending too much time pointing out the extreme right in that in that party as opposed to examining the the extreme left in her own? <laughs> well. Probably so. She certainly doesn't like to examine that. We saw that in the election. You know, she justified some candidates and some behavior that made people go, "Hmm." And then when people said, "Well, you know, Ms. Horvath, is your party really ready to govern? And who would be in your cabinet?" Well, they're all qualified. They're all qualified to be in the cabinet. But 
you know, they would have to take training courses in how to be a cabinet minister, which, you know, everybody does in some, at some level, but she just didn't have a party that seemed ready to govern, and I think that's something they need to focus on now to elevate the profile of her eight or ten best people so that when people look at them next time, they think, yeah, well, no, we've heard of these people. They've made good points. They seem sensible. I could imagine them as a government, but, you know, right now she's, she's not there. It is a very tough job being a good opposition leader, striking the right balance, but you're left with the feeling that she just doesn't like Doug Ford. Hmm. And, you know, anything to the right of the NDP, well, they must just be wrong about everything. On that note, many thought that the Liberals, Kathleen Wynne took the Liberals way too far to the left in in the last term. And, and during the campaign, virtually cut the NDP off at the knees as far as, as, far as a platform. Are the NDP facing... Uh, the thought from Ontario voters that, gee whiz, we thought she, the, Kathleen Wynne took the party too far left. Why would we want even more left? Yeah, it, it creates a dilemma, I think, for the NDP, because you know, in the last election they tried to get out even farther left than the Liberals. That didn't really work. The Liberals ran on what would have been a solid NDP platform. That didn't work. In the election before that, the NDP had run a you know, cautious campaign, sort of you know, pocketbook issues, nothing really too left. That didn't work. So if you're sitting there in the NDP now thinking, well, well, what is our sweet spot exactly? And when you can see them before Christmas, you know, defending the the rights of the uh, six-figure earning union members at uh, Ontario Power Generation, who thought maybe they'd like to go on a strike over Christmas and hmm. shut down power in the province. Like, if you had a grain of political sense, you might say, okay, we, we love unions, but this is not like a real regular blue-collar union and would we really want to see power shut down over Christmas? Mm. No, let's just keep the minimum discussion on that, just move on. But instead, no, we want to make a big fight out of that. We want to defend this union and the right to shut down power over Christmas. I mean, that was like a gift for the PC government, I thought. But it showed a real lack of political sense on Andrea Horvath's part in terms of you know, what fights do you fight and which ones you just say, well, power before Christmas? No, I think we're for that, so... Hmm. Carrie, uh, said. NDP, Ontario NDP, and Andrea Horvath uh, are there better days behind them? Does the ND, how does the NDP stop the Liberals from regaining ground? As you mentioned, this has been a golden opportunity for the NDP. Didn't win the election. How do they stop the the Liberals from regaining steam and, and pushing them right out? Come whether it's this election or the next one. No, it's tough that the Liberals can somehow find a decent leader. I mean, in the polls now, you see the Liberals ahead of the NDP, and so it doesn't mean that much this far from an election. And it's curious how parties, when they don't have a leader, always seem to do well. You know, Ontario PCs were scoring just great when they didn't have a leader. Somehow, when you get a leader, people think, oh, yeah, I don't like that person. But as long as it's just nobody, they're, they're okay with the brand. So the Liberals are showing, at least in polls, some kind of a rebound that ought to be worrying to the NDP. And, you know, a big issue for them is not only what do we present as a platform, but how do you go back with the same leader a fourth time? Yeah. Which just never happens. You know, people have said no thanks three times in a row. Why are they going to say yes the fourth time? And if the NDP does that, to me, that's. It says something about depth. Yeah, it, yeah, it does. And it's also traditional NDP loser thinking. Well, we don't really expect to win the election, so. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. We'll try to do pretty good. If you're going to be in politics, though, surely you want to form government so you can do something. The rest of it is kind of pointless if you're never going to get to that spot. Yeah, and the depth was Jagmeet Singh, who, you know, tragically they lost to the federal NDP. Tragically for the federal party, I think, because he just... Would he have been better no to stay... In that job. Would he have been better to stay in Ontario? Well, I think he would have offered a, you know, a strong apparent alternative to Horvath, but he's so in over his head as a leader. I don't know if he would have been any better provincially or not. He just doesn't seem to have the hang of it. Uh, way back when, during uh, Kathleen Wynne's better days, the Prime Minister uh, aligned himself with her. Uh, the two were often shoulder to shoulder uh, during that time. What can the Prime Minister learn from the Liberal loss in Ontario? Well, I think it ought to concern him. He seems kind of to blissfully float along the surface a lot of things. But, you know, you look at uh, in an election held only months ago, Ontario gave a majority government to a party with a prominent promise to get rid of a carbon tax. 
now Trudeau wants to run, you know, and going to come into Ontario and say, no, you, I don't care what you think. You're having a carbon tax. I'm imposing it. And if you don't like it, tough. There's a lot of people who don't like it. And he's got to look at his seat count in the province and think, hmm, a lot of seats that we hold federally are held provincially by the PCs. That shows people in that riding are willing to go the other way. So how many of those are we really going to take? Uh, I think he's got a, a challenge with that issue in Ontario. It's going to make a very interesting election for that reason. We talked about Doug Ford concentrating on issues that perhaps he shouldn't. Uh, we mentioned some earlier. Is he is Doug Ford getting too involved in federal politics by chasing the carbon tax uh, lawsuit? I don't think so. I think it's a strong issue for him. And I think, you know, people like to see a leader who they consider to be a fighter. So having fought so hard on the issue of a carbon tax, having run on it essentially, having gotten rid of it, I think it would now be dis- disconcerting and probably disappointing for his own supporters if he said, well, yeah, you know, if Trudeau wants to bring one in, whatever. They go, wait a minute, no, aren't you all about getting rid of it? So I think he needs to put up the biggest possible fight to get rid of it. Then you know, put the ball back in Trudeau's court, which is what he's done. So I think he's doing the right thing, certainly for the people who support him, whether it's you know the right thing environmentally is another debate. But Ontario has put forward what I consider to be a reasonable climate change plan. It's built largely on the fact that, hey, look, we already paid a fortune to get rid of coal generation. We've cut our emissions. We're two-thirds of the way to our share of the national goal. Here are some things that we're going to do, which are much like the things the feds are going to do, that will take us the rest of the way. So that's our share, right? A lot of people would think that's reasonable. And then, you know, Trudeau comes along and says, no, 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 it's got to be done my way. It's got to be done with the carbon tax. Can't do it your way. It's got to be done my way. I think it's a weak argument for him in Ontario. And uh, I I don't think there's any love lost between Ford and the federal liberals. So he'll he'll take every chance he's got to uh, undermine them. And politically, provincially, it's good for him, too, because if people don't like the liberal brand, that helps keep them down. So liberals, he's got to fear in the long term, really. It's not the NDP. Randall Denley has been with us. Ontario Liberals, NDP, need to worry less about Ford and more about sorting themselves out. That's the column in the National Post, also in the Ottawa Citizen. Randall, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.